Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, everyone, I'm here today with Roderick Beaton. He's a historian, teacher, and author, and one of the world's leading experts in Greek history, both modern and ancient. He is the Emeritus Professor at King's College London, and he's the author of multiple books about Greece, including his brand new book, which came out November 2nd, The Greeks, A Global History, which we'll be talking about a lot today. How does that all sound, Professor? Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure, and I'll be glad to um, enlighten your, uh, your listeners, or try to. Great, great. Well, starting out, I'd love to just know a little bit more about your history and how you got into the studying of Greek history and just kind of your, your background, what led you into this, into this life? It's a fair question, and it actually goes back a very long way. I was only 13 years old when I... <clears throat> excuse me, I was only 13 years old when I first traveled to Greece as a tourist, but I also had the opportunity to begin right at the beginning because at that same age, <clears throat> I began studying ancient Greek as an optional class at school. And I think from that moment when I first heard Greek spoken very loudly and volubly by excitable people in a bright, sunny, uh, sea uh, sort of seaport um, and the sun was shining and the waves were sparkling and I was thinking this is the same language that I'm studying at school and suddenly the ancient dead language jumped off the page mm. and it's remained like that for me ever since. Greek however old it is is never a dead language it links up with real people who speak it and a real place in the world where these people live now and have lived in the past. Well, and I, I've heard, I don't know almost anything about the actual Greek languages, the ancient or modern languages. I have read some things where they try to linguistically, um, you know, explain the old translations and things. Um, Gregory Nagy's stuff is really, good about diving into the, you know, the language itself. And I've heard that uh, the ancient Greek is actually very similar to current day Greek language. Is that, uh, is that your impression as well? And how, I guess, how fluent are you in the kind of the languages? Well, it's a fair question. And I mean, as I say, I started right at the beginning. So I learned mm -hmm. as um, <clears throat> generations of um you know, British and American and European school children always did, you know, starting Greek with, with Homer and classical tragedy and Plato, um, and then a little bit later, the language of the New Testament, <clears throat> because Greek is, um, is also the, the original language of, uh, of Christianity. Mm. But the remarkable thing about the Greek language is that although it has changed, as all languages do, through the very fact of being spoken and developing a language as a living organism, although it's changed, the Greek language is really one and indivisible all the way back to the earliest records that we can decipher. Mm. Now, um, when you go back more than two and a half thousand years, <clears throat> the language is certainly going to have changed. And 
you know, after many years working and living in Greece and <clears throat> working with Greek friends, um, I'm pretty fluent in Greek as it's spoken today. I can read the Christian New Testament in the original uh, very easily. Um, but once you go back into the classical period, you have to work a bit harder because mm. the language, particularly in that early creative stage, was changing much more rapidly. And if I'm honest, if I'm going to read a book of Homer, a bit of the Iliad or the Odyssey, I've got to pull out the dictionary and the commentary just like everybody else. Right, right, right. Interesting. Um, so your latest book, uh, The Greeks, A Global History, can you tell us a little bit about what you are seeking to accomplish with this book? Well, I really wanted to situate the Greeks in the long term over a long period of time, mm. but also very widely in terms of geography, because as I argue in the book, Greeks right across all the periods when they've been leaving their written records behind, which is three and a half thousand years, have also been making an impact on the other peoples with whom they interacted or traded or made wars or made peace. Um, until today, there are Greek communities, people who speak Greek, people of Greek heritage on every one of the Earth's inhabited continents. And uh, as you all know, there is, of course, a very large and in some ways quite influential um, body of, um, you know, of people in the USA, the, um, the Greek American lobby, it's often called. Um, but people who may or may not speak Greek anymore as a first language, but they're very proud of their Greek heritage mm. and their connection to that past, which they can trace all the way back to classical Athens and Sparta and the poems of Homer even before that. So I really wanted to catch this global reach of Greek civilization. Uh, an obvious starting point is the way, I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with this, in which the classical Greek civilization that flourished about two and a half thousand years ago, the civilization of the city-states, Athens and Sparta and so on, it really created the systems of laws, of literature, of philosophy, of science, that we're familiar with today. They laid the foundations for a great deal, not everything, but a great deal of what we now call <clears throat> Western civilization. Right. Well, that's only one part of the story. And what I set out to do in this book was to set that best known part of the story in the wider context. So I'm not just connecting the Greeks with the rest of the world that was known to them at the time they interacted with, but also looking back a thousand years before that civilization and two and a half thousand years after that civilization and seeing how all these different bits of what I called multiple Greek civilizations actually tie together, how one influences another. Well, that's interesting. That's exactly when I was reading the description of the book a few minutes ago, you talked about, it mentions a series of civilizations. And I think a, a lot of times people, when they think of ancient Greece, uh, you know, if they haven't, if, you know, if they're just a layperson, they haven't spent a lot of time with it. They think about, you know, classical Greece and, uh, and even within classical Greece, you had all of these different cultures. Um, but uh, so, so starting out with this series of civilizations is, is the first uh, sort of civilization that you look at, would that be the Mycenaeans? 
That's right. It's a civilization that we call Mycenaean. Uh, that name, it's a modern name, and it comes from the town, the ancient uh, citadel of Mycenae in the Peloponnese in southern Greece. But in that part of uh, the southern Balkan mainland, about three and a half thousand years ago, the rugged highlanders, shepherds, warriors, whatever else they were who lived in those areas, came together and they began to create um, settlements uh, and they became really developed and they built enormous fortresses. They used such enormous stones to build them that later generations of Greeks thought it must have been supernatural giants who built these fortresses. There was a great deal of organization of manpower there. It's on the scale, it's a little bit like the even older pyramids of ancient Egypt, mm. monumental building. And they were enormously rich. They buried great quantities of beautifully carved gold objects in the graves of their great men and women and sometimes children too. It's a kind of odd thing for us in our terms perhaps to think of doing that. You, your most precious objects you actually bury with the dead, but you might also think they had enough to spare. They could afford to do that, who knows? They do seem to have been very wealthy and they traded all over the Mediterranean. They were regarded as a, as a great power in the Eastern Mediterranean by the other rival civilizations, including the Egyptians that we know about that lived at the same time. Hmm. And it, do you feel that sometimes when I look back at this Mycenaean age, you know, we're all filtering it through these, the myths and legends and things, uh, you know, of the Iliad and, and which may not have even had much to do with the Mycenaeans. I guess it's, it's sort of an open question. Um, but do you feel that sort of the lasting, what do you feel is the lasting legacy of the Mycenaeans? Is it these, is it kind of the mythology and legends passed down or was there a more, uh, was there something more direct kind of legacy that they, uh, that they had? Well, what the, Greeks of the classical period certainly had always in their minds was that before them, there had lived a greater age of heroes mm. and some of their finest works, um, their imaginative works, their plays, their poems are their way of trying to recreate that lost world of heroes. And one of their poets, Hesiod, less famous than, famous than Homer, but probably a contemporary of Homer, actually, tells this myth of how when the human race was first created, there was first an age of gold when everybody was lived a kind of ideal life. And then they declined, there was an age of silver, then came bronze. And then there was the age of heroes hmm. when they, they were able to do marvelous things. They were stronger than living people living today. And they were the ones who left the legacy and as Hesiod ends his story, we, he says, in our own time, and this is the 8th century BCE, in our own time, we live in an age of iron, when people live in poverty and degradation. So the ancient Greeks, right from the beginning, were looking back to a time that they remembered as better and greater, when men and women were closer to the gods and goddesses. What is your impression of... Um... And I know this is a whole controversy and debate in and of itself, um, but what is your impression of how 
they looked back at this era was were, was there actually history uh, that was passed through the ages to the uh, early days of um, I guess I don't know if I would say classical Greece but archaic Greece or, or whatever yeah. um, after the fall of the the Mycenaeans or were they just finding I mean I've heard it uh, explained to me that it's possible they were just finding ruins and then just sort of you know, basically inventing stories and ideas about what this culture must have been. I, I guess my question is, do you think there was any continuity between these between these uh, civilizations? Yes, I do believe there was. I mean, it's a topic that archaeologists and classicists are endlessly arguing about, and there's probably never going to be a clear and agreed answer. Mm. But it's not a complete break, and it couldn't be, because we know that before the Greeks invented their own system of writing in the 8th century BCE, we know that before that, the, the, poet, the hugely long epic poems that we know as the Iliad and the Odyssey had already been forming over hundreds of years. Mm. And the, back in the 19th century, the inspired German archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann was convinced that as he thought, every word in these poems must be actually true history. And he set out to dig first at Troy and then at Mycenae to prove it. And as so often happens, if you're determined to prove something, often you find you find what you're looking for. Uh, right. Schliemann did. We know that we now know that the story is much more complicated than he realized, but he found the incontrovertible evidence that a rich and sophisticated civilization had existed a thousand years before classical Greece in the same area. Mm. And many of the details, details of the armor, the way they fought, the buildings they lived in, even the places where they lived, Mycenae itself, all of these come through the oral tradition and are inherited by Homer and his generation and are then written down by the classical Greeks these are all in some way remembered through hundreds of years of oral tradition. Mm. So I think it is fair to say that the stories that we love and treasure ourselves and keep retelling ourselves today about the heroes and gods and goddesses of ancient Greece, these stories are in the distant origin, actually Mycenaean stories. And like and, and like you said, it's it sounds like one of the lasting legacies of the Mycenaean civilization is that it went on to inspire this golden era of creativity and uh, and civilization that was happening in classical Greece. Um, so when we when we go to classical Greece, uh, you know, it's there's definitely the sense um, in the in the so-called Western world that it has this outsized role in forming the institutions we, you know, operate in with, you know, ideas of democracy and freedom of expression and the arts, et cetera. Um, what is your what is your take on that? And uh, you know, I think there's, you know, there may be some people that say that uh, that that's exaggerated or that. You know, what is your take on the kind of the the specialness of of ancient Greece and, and its impact today? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there is um, I, <laughs> I mean, you would expect me to say this. I mean, I think it's as big and important as it ever was. Mm. 
And one of the reasons that it is so big and so important is that for two and a half thousand years, people before us have thought that it was. Right. They have they have labored to preserve the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, the texts that they wrote, um, the ideas that they were the first to um, explain, and uh, and also the and they just the way of uh, the way of thinking. And some of those were eclipsed. Democracy itself, um, we think of today as perhaps one of the greatest inventions of ancient Greece for a couple of thousand years. There weren't many democracies around anywhere in the world, mm. but look how it came back in the 19th century and how important it is in the world, in the world today. And different societies at different times historically have taken different things from those same ancient Greeks. For example, the early Islamic world during the Middle Ages um, was not very interested in um, literary games as they thought of it, such as comedy or tragedy, but they were wildly excited by the discoveries on astronomy and mathematics and medicine of the ancient Greeks. And it's thanks to Muslim scholars often working in Spain um, between the 8th and the 11th century CE, or in places like Baghdad or Damascus, it's Muslim scholars who preserved a lot of ancient Greek science because the Christians in the West were actually less interested in that. Well, and I think uh, sometimes, at least before I started studying uh, Greece and ancient Greece more, when I heard of ancient Greece, you know, I'd look at a modern map and I'd see the country of Greece and I'd say, okay, that's where ancient Greece was. And I think as the more I've looked into it, the more I see that it was kind of, you know, it wasn't just within that area. I mean, maybe uh, Athens and, and Sparta and, and some others were there, but it was also kind of a, a network that, that um, you know, bordered the Mediterranean Sea and through uh, you know, current day Israel and, and, and Egypt and all these things. Can you talk a little bit about just sort of what, what the Greek world was in classical times? Uh, well, thank you for giving me that opportunity because that is precisely why I chose to call my book The Greeks mm. rather than have Greece in the title. Because as I point out right at the beginning of the book, Greece or Hellas in Greek was always a rather vague and imprecise term in the ancient world. There never was a fixed place or a political state on the map called Greece or Hellas until actually the 1830s. And that's of our era, not BCE. Um, although <clears throat> the Greek world, of course, is very much older, very much older than that. But there is a kind of heartland in the southern Balkans and the Aegean, that's true. But throughout the three and a half thousand years of their history, the people who've spoken the Greek language have been remarkably mobile. And they've got just about everywhere, and usually by sea, and just about everywhere that it's possible to get to with the technology of their time. And there's a famous um, statement that the philosopher Plato puts into the mouth of his own teacher, Socrates. Um, according to which Socrates says, this is um, around about uh, four, 400, 420 BCE. Socrates says, we Greeks live like ants or frogs around a pond between the pillars of Hercules and the river Phasis. 
Now, no one today knows where those places are, but I'll tell you. The Pillars of Hercules are the Strait of Gibraltar. That's between Spain and Morocco, the entrance mm. into the Mediterranean. The River Fasis is the furthest eastern point you can reach in the Black Sea. So the, imagine the Greeks as these ants or frogs, as Plato puts it, making little colonies all around the sea, all around the seas they could reach. And that's what they did for several hundred years, really before the heyday of classical of classical Greece. And actually that I think is one of the reasons why they had to organize this unique and so influential way of defining a, a human community, their own society. It's called the polis or the city state mm. because they're all over the place and they're tiny very often, these states. They've got no one to tell them how to do it. They don't recognize any king. There's no right of heredity. They have, believe in gods, but there's no priesthood or prophets to tell them by, through divine revelation how to do it. They've got to work it out for themselves. Mm. And they do that by arguing among themselves until they evolve the principles that we know as equality before the law and democracy. Is that, and that brings me to my next question. You may have just answered it, but I, I, I just, um, my question, my question is what was so uh, special about this region that it led to these innovations and, uh, and breakthroughs and such a high level of mastery with writing and the arts and political debate and uh, rhetoric and all these things. And, uh, uh, is part of that that you had all of these different independent political entities that had to fend for themselves? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, in a way, I think it's not about place. It's rather the fact that they're scattered. Mm. And because they, they, you know, these are really quite small groups of people. It's one ship or two or three ships. And whoever lands, they land in a place, they put up a stockade, they make their tents, they knock down some trees, they build huts. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's like, I think it's like the early settlers in, um, in North America. Um, but in another way, it's quite different because you Americans then had to fight for your independence from the colonial power back in Britain. But in the Greek world, there was no colonial power. They were not colonies in that sense. They were always independent mm. right from the beginning. And they were small. And each one had to and replicate a system of government and organization that would actually work. If you look back for why that might be, the best I can think of is because the Greek heartland, which if you like is today's Greece on the map, give or take, it's broken up into mountain valleys and islands. You can't get from one inhabited place to another very easily mm. without modern means of transport. It's, all, it's always there for a very fragmented world. And that is probably a reason why the Greeks um, in the early days um, migrated so freely and so widely because their own native land actually was pretty inhospitable. Mm. Um, and I, yeah. I think that there's also, I mean, everyone knows, you know, the Spartans were different than the Athenians and different than the Macedonians. You had all these different um, 
groups. Uh, but I think there's a sense in which they were all part of this Greek culture, except they, they had wars with one another and there were brutal, you know, um, conflicts. Can you talk a little bit about what, what it meant to be Greek in ancient times? And, you know, I mean, today I'm thinking about America and I'm thinking about, okay, we have different States. Yes. We have different levels of government and things. Um, but, you know, uh, Kentucky is not going to war with Illinois or, you know, it's, we're all part of this federal, um, you know, government and we're all Americans, but in ancient Greece, it was, there was a lot of conflict. And can you talk a little bit about what, what held these groups together and what, what didn't help hold them together? Absolutely. I mean, the one thing or one thing that the ancient Greeks never got right and therefore we had to invent it or someone had to invent it other than uh, much later was interstate relations, what mm. we might call diplomacy or, um, you know, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> politics and international relations, as we call it today. The Greeks um, triumphantly invented politics. Indeed, the word is the Greek word. It, it just means the affairs of the city state. Mm. And they were brilliant at regulating um, <clears throat> through through reasoned debate, uh, regulating the internal affairs of quite a small community, which they called the polis or city-state. But they were frankly hopeless when it came to working out how one city-state was going to relate to all the others. And often tiny communities were in a state of constant war against each other because every Greek was brought up to believe that he, and it's very much a male oriented society this, he is a citizen of his own polis. Hmm. Um, I am an Athenian or an Aegean from the island just a few miles offshore or a Spartan or a Macedonian or a Theban. And you always define yourself in that way first. The, even the idea of calling themselves collectively Hellenes, which is the Greek for Greeks, comes quite late in the day. It's only after some of the Greek city-states have banded together to fight off the threat from the vastly bigger empire of Persia in 490 and 480 BCE. It's really only after that amazing military triumph that Greeks begin to think collectively of themselves as a solid single people. And it, and it doesn't really even then catch on, they still fight wars among themselves until eventually the city-states fight themselves to a standstill and the Greek speakers of Macedonia move down from the north and basically take them over. The one thing in the ancient world that did counterbalance to some extent that um, fragmentation of the Greek world was religious festivals and religious centers dedicated to the gods and usually in quite remote or inaccessible places. The island of Delos in the middle of the Aegean, the sanctuary of Olympus um, in, a, in an oak grove in the Peloponnese, Delphi, the navel of the earth according to ancient Greeks, perched on Mount Parnassus. They came together every four years in those places from all the city-states and for once they would stop fighting in order to battle it out 
in regulated contexts, which we call athletics, and that's the mm. beginning of all modern sport. Sport was a kind of surrogate for warfare, but most of the time, alas, they slugged it out on the battlefield. And so they had this amazing way of coming together around this universal, these universal religious ideas. Um, were there, did they fight over these places? I mean, I just think, uh, you know, um, kind of in the modern context of there's so much, um, I guess, um, contentious relations around, you know, there are holy places that are perceived to be holy by multiple groups. And there's kind of a constant, uh, tension around that were these temples and, um, and kind of, uh, these places that were seen as holy by all the city states did they was there some amount of respect where they just didn't they would you know they didn't fight over those places or what was their conflict i'm afraid the ancient greeks would fight with each other over just about anything including holy holy places and there are some famous wars um with among local groups about who was to control olympia and uh mm. delphi in particular but it was, that was completely different from modern religious wars because ancient Greek religion in some ways was a rather more relaxed affair. It's polytheistic, of course. They believe in lots of gods and goddesses and it's really up to individuals or cities or groups whether they want, whether they privilege one god or goddess over, <clears throat> over another. Some are particularly sacred in particular places. But one thing that's really absent in the Greek religious tradition is the role of the prophet or any individual or any caste or group which has privileged access to the divine. Hmm. There's nobody really, there's not that kind of religious authority or if you like the all, all the city-states or all the secular groups equally respect and fear the gods and their power but they don't argue, they never argue as, as Christians have done or Muslims have done about the correct interpretation of God's will. They did argue about much more mundane things. They argued about who was going to get the revenue from all these people coming from all over the Greek world in large numbers to play sports, to compete against one another, to give sacrifices to the gods. But there's, there's not the kind of element of divine revelation. There isn't the theological debates that you see. No, absolutely today. not. And there's no equivalent either of fanaticism. Mm. I mean, Socrates, Socrates was put to death because it was alleged he, he, he declined to worship the gods of the city and worshipped gods of his own and the the truth of that claim has been argued ever since but that wasn't really like heresy in the christian tradition yeah. it was it was it was stepping outside what is fundamentally a secular norm there isn't that um that sense of of religious of deep conviction devotion or in the at its extreme end fanaticism Interesting. Um, it leads me to uh, thinking to to kind of continuing to move forward through the long history. Obviously, we're we're not going to be able to cover everything, um, 
but it leads me to Alexander and and his impact. We've talked a lot about Alexander the Great on this podcast, and he was someone who seemed to have pretty strong religious uh, respect for the heroes and the gods and this kind of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the rise of, of Macedon and, 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 and especially mm. also the, the fall and what, and what happened to the Greek world after uh, the, the empire of Alexander began to break apart? We've, we've hardly gotten into this at all on the podcast. Um, I think like many histories of Greece and, and people who are interested in Alexander, they, you know, he dies and they move on to looking into something else. Um, what is kind of the role of, of, of Macedon and Alexander in this long arc of Greek history? Well, the extraordinary thing that Alexander achieved was to spread Greek culture and the Greek language across just about the entire known world or accessible world at the time. Mm. And as I'm sure you've discussed on previous podcasts, his conquests took him as far as uh, today's Pakistan and the northwest provinces of, uh, of India. And mm. uh, for hundreds of years after that, Greek became the common language, the shared language of the entire Middle East, um, the, and <clears throat> all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea to the Caspian and to the Himalayas. Alexander himself was not a typical Greek. He, um, <clears throat> he came from Macedonia, which is on the uh, sort of northern fringe of the, of the Greek world. He was a Greek speaker. His, uh, his ancestors, the kings of Macedonia, were all Greeks, Greek speakers. Um, but they were looked on with some suspicion by the cultivated and some, some, some would say rather self-regarding Athenians and Spartans who thought they were infinitely superior. They rather looked down on Alexander and those Macedonians. But of course, it was the Macedonians who had the last word because they, they mopped up all the city-states. They put an end to the, uh, the freedom and the democratic system of these, um, of the polis system. And um, they were, if you like, top dog for the next 300, uh, 300 years. But it's interesting what you said about Alexander respecting the Greek gods, and he certainly did export the Greek gods right across the world. But Alexander was one of the first Greeks who seems to have, who may have actually believed that he was himself a god. Hmm. And he set a trend. His father, Philip II, probably started it before him, but he certainly set a trend that kings in the Greek-speaking world thereafter presented themselves as at least semi-divine, and once they died, they expected to be uh, worshipped as gods. And Alexander's empire, as you know, it fell apart very shortly after his death. It was ruled in a very messy fashion by, there were mainly three uh, rival kingdoms. And just as the Greek city-states had fought, fought among themselves for supremacy, so these much larger kingdoms uh, ruled by Alexander's successors also fought a series of wars among themselves until they were all eventually uh, conquered by the expanding power of Rome. Mm. But there is a legacy here because much of the trappings of these kings who followed Alexander and who saw themselves as semi-divine and deified after death, these were carried over 
after the Romans conquered the Hellenistic kingdoms, they too became a monarchical state. Now the Romans would never accept, agree to be ruled by a king. They repudiated the Greek title of king, but Augustus and the Roman emperors, as we call them, were worshipped in exactly the same way as the Hellenistic kings had been. And I think there's a strong element of continuity from Alexander through the Hellenistic kings to Augustus and the first, indeed all the Roman empires, right through until the Roman empire in turn morphs into what we call the Byzantine empire. By that time it's Christian, but it's still um, ruled by an emperor um, who is still uh, a head of state in much the same kind of way. Mm. I want to remind listeners that we're speaking with Roderick Beaton, and we're talking about all things Greek history, including his brand new book, The Greeks, A Global History, which came out earlier this month. Um, so you mentioned the Roman Empire and how it, uh, the expanding empire of Rome kind of ended these uh, last uh, vestiges of, of Alexander's empire and, 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 and all of the, the pieces of that. You know, um, one thing that, that I think people are familiar with is how many similarities there are with, you know, the Roman uh, re- religion uh, um, before Christianity, of course, and the Greek religion. And there's some sense that the Romans uh, really just adapted a lot of Greek culture uh, in, in what they did. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of, you, you've mentioned how the, uh, the Roman emperors adopted, uh, adopted some of these, uh, some of these trends from the Greek world. Uh, how else did the Greek culture serve as a model for, for Romans or influence their culture? In lots of ways. I mean, Rome itself from its, in its beginnings was rather like, in fact, it was very like um, any one of hundreds of Greek city-states at the same time. Mm. What was different about it was they spoke a different language. They spoke Latin. Um, but otherwise, they grew up in much the same way. Um, they started off with kings. They threw out their kings. They developed a republic, which was very similar to the self-government of a Greek city-state. And then, but unlike the Greek city-states, uh, any Greek city-state, they then... Uh, the one city-state, Rome, then grew uh, to rule basically the whole of the known world uh, at that time. But as Rome became more and more powerful, it also absorbed an enormous amount of Greek culture. And there's a famous statement by the Roman poet uh, Horace, writing in the time of Augustus, which is also the time of, of Jesus, um, that, uh, that Rome, the conqueror, was taken captive by the conquered Greece. In other words, the Roman, particularly the elites, actually learned Greek, they spoke Greek, they adapted Greek ways, Greek ways of writing, Greek thought, Greek philosophy to their own purposes. Um, it's not true to say that the Romans ever became you know, Roman culture was always different. It's distinct. It's distinct, but it had enormous influence from uh, from Greeks, and throughout the centuries of the Roman Empire, from the time of Augustus until the fall of Rome in 410 CE, 
The Roman Empire actually functioned in two languages. The Western Empire spoke Latin and all the tribes, in, as far as Britain and France and Spain, all the tribes that were conquered, they learned to speak Latin and their descendants still do today. But east of Italy, and right through to the <clears throat> boundaries of the empire in the Middle East, today's Middle East, most people spoke not Latin, but Greek. Mm. And about, but somewhere between a third and a half of the population of the Roman Empire at its heyday actually spoke not Latin, but Greek. And that Greek culture carried on uninterrupted through the period of the Roman Empire until after the fall of Rome to the barbarians in the fifth century, the Greek Eastern Empire once again re-established its Greek identity, but now with a new capital city, which had been founded by the Roman Emperor Constantine I in the year 330. And so this, okay, so uh, even though the political power maybe of the Greek city-states and stuff like that declined, the rise of Rome, the cultural influence of Greece continued. And then now um, what you're talking about is the Byzantine world and uh, uh, Constantinople, and, and now the religion had become Christianity? Indeed. Constantine I, who I mentioned just now, um, was later canonized. He is a saint of the both the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. Although in life, I think it has to be said, he was no saint, but uh, he was a pragmatic and mighty emperor. Mm. But he was the first Roman emperor who first acknowledged Christianity and later towards the end of his life, accepted Christianity and paved the way for Christianity to become the later the official religion of as much of the Roman empire as, uh, as survived. As I said, in the West, it began to collapse very soon, but in the East, it continued for several hundreds of years. And this is the empire that today we call Byzantine rather than Roman. It begins to become Byzantine from the time of Constantine and through the slow process whereby the Western empire disappears, the Eastern empire becomes converted slowly but surely and finally totally to the new religion of Christianity, so it becomes a Christian monotheistic empire. And once the Western Roman Empire has been lost, the empire in the East, Christian with its capital in Constantinople, also adopts or consolidates Greek as its main and official language. The Byzantines for a thousand years after the time of Constantine continued to call themselves Roman and their empire, the Roman Empire, but they did so not in Latin anymore. They'd all forgotten Latin. They couldn't read it even. They did so in Greek. And so this, um, and this is what this Byzantine world is. Uh, this is one of these series of civilizations that you talk about in in your book. Is that right? It is. And part of the one of the, one of the points I wanted to bring out in this book is how utterly different that Byzantine Empire is from either the Hellenistic Greek world after Alexander or the classical world of city-states or the world of the Mycenaean warriors and traders in the Bronze Age. This is, um, it's, a, it's a world empire 
at its height. It's one of the largest, most influential in the world at the time. Constantinople by the 11th and 12th centuries is possibly the world's largest city. It might have a rival in China, but it's one of the, certainly one of the world's largest known cities. And it's a center of a far-flung world empire. Unlike any of these predecessors, this is totally centralized. It's monarchical. The em emperor is head of state, head of government. His word is law. But there is also a single religion. Uh, heresy is not allowed or tolerated. And Christian belief is a matter often of intense controversy that sometimes tears the empire apart. This is so fascinating. I Coincidentally, I just read a a new book uh, called Cloud Cuckoo Land, a novel by Anthony Doerr, who won the Nobel Prize. And it's about, it's part of it is set in Constantinople and it's uh, during this Christian age. And, but the, some of the characters are discovering these ancient Greek myths, but they're being punished for even reading the translations and things like that. It's a fascinating book. Uh, book. I had no idea when I got it, it, it was connected to Greek history or Greek mythology. Um, so is the height of Constantinople, when is that? Are we talking, I mean, I guess it's, it's uh, we're talking after, after the fall of the proper Roman empire and through the middle ages, uh, you know. Long after, yes. Okay. I, I think that like, I think I certainly have this impression of the middle ages as this, you know, kind of the uh, the castles in England and kind of everything, you know, the, I don't know, I don't want to say Monty Python. I, I don't know. You know, I just have a very rudimentary impression of what the Middle Ages consisted of and, and uh, the Dark Ages, as it's sometimes referred to controversially. So uh, during this time, Constantinople is is growing in uh, power or, or how does that, what is it's this certainly. evolution? Yes, it certainly is. I mean, the term Middle Ages, I think, became current in the 19th century and mm. uh, even before Monty Python, but it does sum up exactly what you say. It's that world of castles, the Dark Ages. It's, it's what comes in between the classical world and the modern world. Mm. And we now know that, in fact, a great deal was going on about how the modern world was shaped during those centuries. But, um, I mean, take this one, uh, 1066, which is probably the best known date in British history, I would guess perhaps less on your side of the Atlantic, but 1066 <laughs> is when William the Conqueror of Normandy lands on the south coast of England, um, conquers the whole of Anglo-Saxon England, and really lays the foundations for the British Isles as they have been ever since. And there's a famous uh, comical history book called 1066 and all that, which is a kind of wrapping up of all of British history. The same year that uh, William the Conqueror landed and fought the Battle of Hastings um, in southern England. Um, Constantinople was ruling over an empire that stretched from the Adriatic to um, the well into the Middle East and from the Black Sea um, to Crete and Cyprus. Uh, the, the middle in the middle, you know, people in the Middle Ages in the West are living in castles. <clears throat> they're fighting wars against each other. They're um, uh, they're often living in very small competing states. Whereas Constantinople is uh, it's the center of a, of a of an empire, wow. and that's in the eleventh and the twelfth centuries. It declines rapidly at the very end of the twelfth century, 
and it falls victim in part to the beginning of the rise of Western Europe as marked by the series of the Crusades where uh, European, I mean, some people say that European colonialism began <clears throat> by the attempts to recapture, as they put it, the, um, the Holy Land in the East. Constantinople, uh, the Byzantine Empire squeezed between the Islamic East and uh, Western Christendom became a victim when in 1204, the city of Constantinople, for the first time in its long history, was sacked, not by Muslims, but by Christians from the West, who were supposedly making war on Islam, but actually turned aside uh, to fight their fellow Christians in Constantinople. And wow. from that time, Constantinople uh, very rapidly declines. The Greek-speaking world, which, which is still very widely diffused throughout all these areas of the Balkans, the Aegean, the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Middle East, it continues, um, but under a kaleidoscope of different rulers for hundreds of years, until eventually just about all Greek speakers are drawn into the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which is an Islamic, a Muslim empire, but it has the same capital city, Constantinople, or as the Turks rebaptized it, Istanbul, which they ah. conquered in 1453. Okay, so Constantinople is now Istanbul. That's right. It's the same. It's the same city, and it actually it actually retained both names officially until I think the 1920s, when it was the Turkish Republic actually officially made Istanbul the only official name of the city. But it was known informally as Constantinople right throughout that. Uh, throughout well, that time. and I'm and I'm fascinated. I, I do have at least one question about kind of modern day Greece, but I'm I'm fascinated by this Constantinople. Uh, civilization, this Byzantine civilization, where they had they were using the Greek language, but were were the um, were the other aspects of Greek were were the aspects of Greek religion and mythology were those um, were those banned? Were they known of? Did the did the people living there know of Homer and in these things, or was that seen as heresy and uh, uh, outlawed during this time? they worked out a very cunning way of rubbing along with their ancient heritage. Mm. Because on the one hand, they were devout, um, sometimes passionate Christian believers. On the other hand, they almost, uh, almost as much valued their own language and the, 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 the subtlety of expression of that language, the skill of the authors who'd written in it, um, even before the coming of Christianity. And that was partly because Christianity was itself the language, I'm sorry, because Greek was the language of Christianity itself. The New Testament was first written in Greek. So if you're a Greek speaker, a Christian education is a Greek education. And they tussled in the early Christian centuries whether to throw out all the mythology and all the philosophy and all the works of literature. Um, as being pre-Christian and therefore heretical. But in the end, they found this wonderful compromise whereby children and adults too studied the ancient authors for their grammar, for their syntax, for their perfection of expression. They were not supposed to take seriously the content of what they read, but they did study the texts and they preserved the texts. And later, people began to talk again about the mythology and the philosophy 
and sometimes they got ticked off as heretics. They didn't burn heretics in Constantinople, or very, very rarely. Mm. But you could still um, you you could still lose your lose your job if you um, if, if you talk too much about say the ideas of Plato. But he was absolutely all right to write in the to write in the style of Plato, which meant you it was all right to read Plato very carefully and. Another thing they did that, I mean, seems rather quaint to us, they, they reinterpreted these pagan works, Homer and the tragedies, as allegories of Christian belief. Mm. And the 12th century, people would write reams and reams, retelling the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey as, uh, as like, you know, as an allegory of Christian belief. Wow. And, and are any of those are, are those texts and things preserved today? Yeah, we, we can still we can still read those. I mean, they do seem a bit crazy, but <laughs> wow. it, but it's thanks to the the sort of slate of hand of the people who thought of that that mm. we could still read the ancient authors if they'd been rigorous and uh, <clears throat> if they'd been rigorous and expunged everything that was heretical in content. Um, the glories of ancient Greek literature and philosophy would have been lost to us. But it was Christians who preserved them, not for their content, but for their language. Wow. Again, I would emphasize the thread of the Greek language as the, the continuous thread that runs through this whole story. Well, and, and I know we're, we're covering a lot of ground and uh, you know some of the more modern uh, history of Greece may be outside of the scope of of this show, but I, I do, uh, I, I am fascinated by the fact that I've never been to Greece. Actually, I take that back. I did stop at an island or two when I was a teenager on a cruise, <laughs> but I didn't know what I was looking at at the time. That counts. Uh, that counts. That counts. But I didn't. I gosh, I I'm dying to go back. Um, what is? I'm assuming that you've been to Greece many times. Oh yes, I mean I spent a lot of uh, I I. I haven't lived there for long periods, but I, I regularly come and go. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot closer to where I live than for you. Right, right. Well, I guess my, one of my questions is, what do you think it is uh, today that you know? I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. I have no connection to Greece other than I started learning about some of the mythology when I was a kid, and now I'm, I, I almost see it as like, you know, I have a much stronger connection to Greece in my mind than I do. Uh, you know, maybe England, you know, I think my ancestors are English and Irish. And I'm interested in that as well. But Greece is the place where I feel like I want to go more than anywhere. Why, why do you think it's it's still drawing um, so many people from around the world to to visit to to look into these uh, into this culture? I mean, what is the what is pulling people back to Greece? I mean, there were civilizations throughout a lot of the ancient world? Well, I think it's, well, I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of reasons why people go to visit a country as a, as a tourist, and uh, Greece does have some, you know, it has some wonderful landscapes, it has wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful weather. Um, it is a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not Greek either. I have no Greek ancestry that, I'm, that I know of, um, but, you know, I would say I mean, it's people are, um, are, are are wonderfully friendly, and uh, you know, I love the place, I love the people. But for me, it's more than that. It's also it's also an intellectual engagement, mm. and I think that's what I meant really at the beginning when I was 
explaining about how I went as a tourist and was captivated by the place of the people, but also by that continuity of the language that I was learning at school. And that fascination, that's really what brought me to devote, as it turned out, uh, a, a professional lifetime to Greece and the study of Greeks and their language. It's not just, I think, that historically um, the, the Greeks of various, of the distant past have given so much to all of us that we've inherited. I mean, it's not a question of what we've inherited through our genes, but the culture we've inherited through growing up in what we broadly call the West. But it's also, I'm fascinated by the very fact of that language having evolved, but continuously and traceably through so many thousands of years. We can actually look at what people wrote and said and thought in the same language that they can, you know, their descendants can go back and read it um, all across that long period. We can see how the ways that all of us think about our communities, define ourselves, relate to others, this whole much fraught question of identity, who we are, the politics of identity. In a way, when I was writing this book, I was thinking, you know, could we maybe take a bit of the heat out of some of that? by saying, look at identities of people over such a long time span, three and a half thousand years, and it's not always the same, it keeps changing. And there's something creative about that, mm. surely. That's perhaps the thing I would most like maybe readers to take away from this book, that for me, what the Greeks is most wonderful about the Greeks is that they and their ancestors have continuously reinvented themselves. They've found new identities in which they have believed passionately in the time and the context in which that generation has lived. It suggests that identity is not something given immutable that we've got to go out and sort of fight for or um, you know, put up barriers or still worse still fight wars for. That's something that I think the Greeks can teach us all today. Right. Well, Professor Beaton, this has been a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to read the book. It looks awesome. Again, I'll remind uh, listeners that it's called The Greeks, A Global History. It's out on Amazon, as well as other bookstores and online bookstores. Uh, is there anything else that you want to mention uh, before we sign off? I think you've given me a very good uh, innings. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. And hopefully we can talk again uh, another time one day. I'd be glad to. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.